next week we're going to look at what happens at that point in salvation and being freed when you meet God. When you meet God. Um, before I read the passage, I want to uh, acknowledge that, that I listened to a sermon by a guy named Brian Sorgenfrey, and it was fantastic, and I unashamedly uh, and asked his permission, but um, I borrowed a lot of his stuff, and so I want to say that on the front end. But let's read this passage together from Exodus 3. Uh, I'm going to read 1 through 17 if you're following on a phone or in a Bible or something. It says this, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on the mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's pray real quick before we look at this together. God, we uh, pray that you would meet us, that you would send your spirit to uh, open our hearts to what we might learn tonight, what we might hear from your word. God, you know that we're all very different and we've had uh, different experiences in our life. Some of us grew up in church. Some of us have never been in anything like a church. Um, some of us have uh, known you for some time and we've had a relationship with you for some time and some of us don't 
uh, have that relationship at all, and we're curious about this. I pray that wherever we are, that you would meet us all in this time in a very individual and personal way, but then unite us around the good news of what Jesus has done and then send us out together. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me come. Oh, gosh, I hope that's not expensive. Um, So, uh, look, what happens, what do you do in your life when you come across something or something happens that just, it doesn't fit in your, your view of the world? It doesn't make sense. It kind of doesn't fit these predetermined categories of the way things are or the way that things seem to be in the world. Um, this happened to me, these kind of things happen all the time. I was thinking about this though, and it happened to me a few years ago when uh, a friend told me that there is a bald eagle nest here in Tulsa. <laughs> and um, uh, Sarah was out of town, and we hadn't had Nora Klein yet, and so, uh, or we hadn't had Catherine yet, so Nora Klein and I got in the car, and we were going to go bald eagle hunting, right? Um, so uh, it was out by the bridge on 71st where it crosses over Riverside, and sure enough, it was February, and so there were no leaves on the tree. And you could see this bald eagle nest from a really long way away. But we got a little closer. And the closer we got, what I realized is that, oh my gosh, this nest is huge. And then I saw the bald eagles. And I saw them fly. Y'all, they're massive. Like wingspans of six plus feet. When they stand, they can be up to three feet tall. This is not an ostrich. This is a bald eagle. Um, and I just didn't know that. I was so surprised. By, maybe I'm the only idiot in there. I don't know. I thought they were like little, you know, eagles, and they fit on your on your dollar bills and stuff. I had no idea they were so big. So I had to go home and investigate, right? I'm on Wikipedia. I'm looking. My mind's being blown. Um, these kind of things happen to us when we come across something that doesn't make sense. So for some of you, that uh, there's things like maybe a book. Or you're presented with an idea, maybe in class or through your friends or through some of your own reading. Or maybe it's a person who just, they kind of just blow your categories. Maybe you've fallen in love, whatever that means. And your whole um, thoughts about what that was like or what it was supposed to be like or what that person would be like when it happened, it just kind of doesn't make sense. But you're forced to, to reevaluate something. Or maybe it was the divorce of your parents. Maybe it was something difficult where... Previous to that point, you just, you just hadn't really thought about it. You're put in a position where you have to look. You have to do some investigation and figure out what is going on. I want us to see that that is exactly what happens to Moses in this passage. That he looks up and he's had this encounter that he doesn't, quite frankly, know how to make sense of. He doesn't know how to make sense of it because he's met the one true and living God and that hasn't happened to him before. And what I want us to see tonight are three things through this, is that when anyone meets the one true and living God, they find out these three things. First, that God, that God is a God of fire. He is the God who is a fire. Secondly, He is the God who is. And thirdly, that He is a God who sends out. First, the idea that God is a fire. It's really key to understanding this whole passage to see that Moses didn't go out seeking this Event. He didn't go out looking for a burning bush that wasn't consumed because he had never seen that before. That wasn't like, oh, those kind of things happened all the time back then, just bushes that would burn and not burn. Um, Now, he was a shepherd, and he's out there doing what he had done for about 40 years. He had been married, and he had some kids, 
And he's just doing his job. He was tending to his father-in-law's flock of sheep. And he's out there in the pasture, and he notices this bush that it says is burning, which might have been normal. I mean, that's not what blows someone's categories, right? Just the idea of a bush burning. But it happens when he looks over and notices that this thing isn't being consumed. There's this bush that's burning that's not being consumed. So he leaves the path, and he turns aside, and he takes an investigation. He takes time to figure out what in the world is going on here. And when he does that, he meets God. And what he finds out first is that God is a fire. Now, it's interesting that if you read much of the Bible or throughout the whole Bible, you'll see that when God wants to reveal himself to people, he often and almost always does it through this medium. He almost always shows up as a fire. In Genesis 15, when God first uh, is introducing himself to Abraham, it says that this great uh, sleep came upon Abraham and that God appeared through his, in his sleep as a flaming fire pot and a torch. Right, and he passed through these through these animals, and then later on, as as God in this Exodus book, and we'll look at it in a few weeks, as God is bringing these people out of Egypt, it says that He led them by night as a pillar of fire. He was a pillar of fire, and then later in Mount Sinai, when God gives the Ten Commandments, it says that that God He indwelt the mountain as fire and smoke, and then the New Testament Acts two. God comes and reveals himself to people and says there's like this little tongue of fire above their head. That God is constantly revealing himself as a fire. Now why? Why does he do that? Why would he choose that as the means through which he reveals himself? What is it about fire? I want to suggest that the reason that God does this is that fire is at the same time both irresistibly dangerous, incredibly dangerous, but also fascinating. That it's both of those things. It's dangerous and fascinating at the same time. And you, you know that if you've ever looked into a fire, right? If you've ever sat around a campfire, we had a bonfire last fall, or even in your fireplace, and you just look at it for long enough, fires are incredible. They're intriguing. The colors and the, the ways that they move, and then they hit the air pocket, and that's always cool because then it's like a firework. And um, it's, it's amazing. I was talking to, uh, to Bo Berman, a friend of mine, he was saying that uh, he gets together with some guys from his church, and they just sit around a fire pit, and they bond at such deep levels by just looking at the fire and saying nothing. That's what guys do. There's just this fascination with it. But you also know that it's very dangerous. And that if you trifle, if you trifle with it, you can get burned, and it consumes homes. It's consumed people. The fires are very dangerous. And so just so you don't think I'm kind of making this whole thing up, this is what happens to Moses. And at once, as Moses is talking to this, well, he's meeting God in this burning bush, God calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses. And any time a name appears twice in the Hebrew language, it's kind of an endearing, moving towards someone. Like a calming effect. Moses, Moses. But then the very next verse, he says, don't come near. <laughs> right? Don't come near me. You're standing on holy ground. So Moses hits the deck. And he quits looking. And this is it. That if you want to know what it's like to meet the one true and living God, you meet someone who both repels you in terror, but also draws you in. There's this scene in the Chronicles of Narnia in the silver chair where Jill, she's dying of thirst. 
She's dying of thirst, and she hears the sound of running water in the stream. But as she approaches the stream, she's paralyzed in fear because before this stream, as it sits in front of her, is this huge, huge lion. And this lion is staring at her, and and she's paralyzed. But the conversation goes like this. The lion looks at her and says, look, if you're thirsty, you can drink. And she realized that it was the lion that was speaking. It says the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her feel any less frightened, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. It says as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might have well, she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move. Then it says this. Are you not thirsty? Says the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. And the lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? Said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Well, do you eat girls? She said. (laughs) I have swallowed up girls and boys. Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst. I suppose I'll go look for another stream. There is no other stream. Then her mind made itself up. And it was the worst thing she ever had to do. She went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water. And it was the coldest most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You see, meeting God works like that. It's terrifying. Because when you discover the one true and living God, you discover a God who is holy. You discover a God who is pure. And that's why Moses takes the sandals off and hits the deck. He knows and he realizes this God is a consuming fire, that His holiness, His otherness makes him someone that he can't just be himself before naturally. Because God is so pure, and just like any fire, he would consume any impurities. And Moses realizes that he is impure in that presence. And this means that any time you encounter God, you become uncomfortably aware of your own impurity, of your own sin. Look, I... I can't make a ton of promises about what it's like when you meet God. But I can promise you this. If you claim to have a relationship with God and you have never felt a sense of your impurity, you have never gotten a glimpse of your own sin and what that's like when you stand before a holy God, then friends, you have not met God. And you do not have a relationship with Him. Because His very presence exposes the opposite of what He is. His very purity highlights our impurity. His very sinlessness makes me aware of my sin. His love makes me aware of my selfishness. And we're undone. And think about this. If Christianity is this process of of knowing God better and coming to know more and more of His character, then this process never ends. We're constantly aware of our own sin before Him. So it's kind of frightening. But it's also mesmerizing and it's also fascinating. Because look, 
When you come to know that God, when you come into his presence, you realize that really he's the only one who has what you need most. He is the only one who can fill you at the deepest level and bring meaning to your life in a way that nothing else can. That that is the only relationship in this world that will give you what your heart aches for. For someone who knows you fully and still loves you. And God is saying, yeah, that's it. You come to me and I know everything about you. And that's, that's terrifying. But I know everything about you and I love you. And that's fascinating. And so he works like a fire. It's both of those things. In the midst of meeting this God who is a fire, God gives Moses a mission and tells him that, that he's going to be the one who brings this enslaved people out of Egypt. And God looks at Moses and says, uh, Moses, this is going to be you. You're going to bring them out. And so Moses, you know, he's got to be thinking, oh, my gosh, I, that can't be me. I, just, I killed a guy. I can't do this. And so he looks up at, at God and asks him a question in verse 13. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, uh, who sends you? The God of your fathers who sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? See, he gets it. He's like, God, it, if I go and do that, they're going to look at me and say, Moses? Like, the Moses who left 40 years ago after he killed that guy? What are you doing here? Now, imagine that conversation. And we can sympathize with him as it goes something like this. Well, right, it's been a while since I've been here, guys. But I was out working the other day, and I saw this bush, <laughs> right? Uh, and it was burning. It wasn't consumed. And it started talking to me. And he asked the only logical question. God, when I start saying this and they ask me, now who sent you? What do I tell them? And God responds to them in verse 14 and 15 by saying to Moses, I am who I am. Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That you will know, friends, you will know when you've met the one true living God, when you've met the God who simply is. He just is. Now, it's so important to see this, that when God, when God reaches out to Moses, He actually wants Moses to know Him. He doesn't just come in this consuming fire and just like, you know, lash out in these big flares and, you know, cause Moses to fall back. He actually reveals Himself to Moses. He wants Moses to have that relationship with Him. This is the, the, any relationship has this. When you meet people, it's the very first thing you do. You exchange names. You start getting to know each other. Where are you from? What are you studying? Oh, cool. What do you like to do? And God here is letting Moses in on who he is. And he says, I am. Tell the people that I am has sent you. This is the God who doesn't just stay out there and stay a mystery. Remember at the end of chapter 2 when it says that he heard their cries? And he listened and that he knows them. Then he hears your cries and he listens to you. And he knows you if you're in that relationship with him. So here he is doing that. He does this with Moses. And what does it mean when God says, I am who I am? Just tell them the I am is in you. What does that mean? There's some things we know and there's, there's a lot of things we don't know. Okay. Um, the word there is some form of the word to be, which is fairly obvious. There's really no trick in translating that. It's just tell them I am. And so what does that mean? Well, um, there's a few things that it does mean at least. It means that God was saying that I am the God who is. 
that there's no beginning to me. There's no ending to me. I was the same the yesterday, yesterday, today, and I'll be the same tomorrow. I am unchanging. I am who I am. I am not fluctuating with the waves of time. I am the personal being that comes near and that hears you, but I am also eternal. And I am unchangeable. I am infinite. I am self-existent. He is the God who creates. He is not created. And He creates everything, and everything is created for Him and through Him. And so even in that explanation, there's things we don't know. And that's okay. We would expect that of someone who just comes and says, I am. Right? There's just mystery there. And Christians for thousands of years have had to been okay with that. But look, in realizing the nature of God, in realizing kind of these, these big categories, we realize that when you meet God, when any of us meet God, we realize that He's not someone that we can just manipulate. We can't make Him out to be who we want Him to be. He doesn't... He's not changeable. He's not changeable. He's not clay to be molded into the image that we want Him to be. And so He has a hard time fitting our kind of our categories of what we want Him to be. And this is why I am goes right along with the idea of a fire. There's a guy, a commentator named Phil Riken who says this. He says, look, you can mold clay and you can dash rocks and you can cut wood, but fire, you can't manipulate fire. You can't mold fire. It molds you. When you come to know a God who is fire and who He is, you can't, you can't manipulate Him. Now, this is what this means for us. That when you encounter God Himself, you realize that I don't get to change Him, but that He changes me. That if you're actually in relationship with Him, then that means that He's in the process of changing you. Because of the whole impurity thing, because of our sin, He is too pure than to, to stay there and just be content with that. We can't mold Him into this nice little box, but when He's present, He presses in and changes me. Look, on the one hand, some of you have written off God and the idea of God because you've read your Bible or you've had a conversation with somebody and you kind of come to that point and you end up saying, I can't believe in a God who would act like that. I can't believe in a God who would call people sinners. I can't believe in a God that, that makes me feel like a sinner. I can't believe in a God that, you know, whatever. You've heard it. Maybe you've thought it. Look, I mean this very tenderly. I'm not just trying to be brash with this. But when we have those kind of thoughts and ideas, God looks at us and says, I am. I am. And you either get me on my terms or you don't get me at all. And He's okay with that. And we're the ones who need to come up under that and say, you know what, I don't get it all. But this is who He said He is. I am. And on the other hand, some of us actually like to try to make God very comfortable and we try to, we try to tame Him. We want to, we want the relationship. We want, we want to just relegate Him to certain parts of our life. We're, we don't want Him to see that stuff. We just want Him to see this stuff. But He can't do that. He, if you have Him, if you have the relationship, he, he owns all of you. He's a fire that comes to all of you, to every part of you. And this means that when you know Him, you can't say that God has nothing to do with your body. 
You can't say that God has nothing to do with your thoughts and your dreams. You can't say that God has no control over what you look at on the computer. You can't say that God has no say over what you do with your career and the rest of your life. He doesn't just stand by on the side and get a a little bit of you. He gets all of you. This is God. He's holy and He's dangerous. He's not tame. He can't be changed. But at the same time, you need Him. And He claims to complete you in a way that nothing and no one else can. And so He's repelling, but He's also alluring and He draws you in. But what, how does that work then? If, if I'm both impure and, and sinful and He's pure and sinless then how does the relationship work? I'm drawn to Him, but when I get close to Him, I realize that I'm impure, that I'm a sinner. So how can sinful me stand in the presence of holy God? How can sinful you, with all the stuff that you know keeps you from being good or keeps you from being perfect, or however you want to say it, how can you ever be in His presence? You're drawn to Him, but how can you do that? That's the question of all questions. In John chapter 8, Jesus gets into this heated conversation um, <clears throat> with the religious authorities of his day, and the tensions are rising, and they say to him, Jesus, you've claimed to see Abraham. You're crazy. And Jesus looks at them and says, Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up rocks to kill him. Because what was happening is that Jesus was claiming to be God. He said, I know, I know Abraham, he looked forward to my day, I am. And they wanted to kill him. And friends, they continued that pursuit wanting to kill him until he ends up on a cross. And there is Jesus, the I am, the eternal God hanging on a cross. And in that great moment, in that picture, the paradox of the fire is solved. And that's exactly it, because you see, when Jesus is on the cross both spatially as he was hanging between earth and heaven, but also spiritually, Jesus himself in that moment represents both the holiness of God, but also the love of God. And they unite on the cross, and this is how. That God's holiness is on display in the cross when Jesus knowingly and willingly takes mankind's sin onto himself. That's what he did. That's why he came to earth was to take mankind's sin. And on the cross, God's wrath and his fire consumes him. When our sin is put on Jesus, God smotes him. He wipes him out. And And Jesus experiences hell On the cross. And that, my friends, is why he says on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath of a holy God means that he can't just accept everybody as we are. He can't just willingly, kind of flippantly, just love everyone. Because that's not in his character, that's not in his nature. He's holy and He's pure. He demands perfection. And so sin must be paid for. It must be covered. And it was on the cross. So you and I don't have to cover for it ourselves. In that very same moment, while Jesus is the holiness of God, He's also drawing you in as the love of God. 
And He's so loving that it costs Him everything to have you. Jesus' love for you wasn't cheap love. You aren't a cheap date. Jesus says, you are worth, you are worth me. You are worth everything I am. And He willingly gave everything He was for you. Because He loves you. He wanted the very best for you. And He knew the very best for you was to be brought back to God. To restore that relationship so you could be reconciled to Him. And when you get that, when when you see that God's love was for you, it begins to melt your heart. And you're drawn to Him. So you know you've met God when you've met the God who's a fire. And you know you've met Him when you've met this God who, who is. And finally, I want us to see that you know you've met the God of the Bible, the true and living God, when this God sends you out. Look, when you meet Him, this God of uncompromising holiness, but also a God of unending love, the result is you always get sent out on a mission. You always get sent out. You're brought into the love of God in order that you might be sent out. And this is what happens with Moses. God comes to Moses five times in the book of Exodus, and he says to Moses that you are the one I'm sending out to bring my people out of slavery. That you're it, Moses, five times. And five times Moses looks up and kind of does this whiny temper tantrum thing and says, Oh, God, no, you've got the wrong guy. I'm a mess. I'm a failure. Don't you know I killed that guy? And God doesn't respond to Moses by like, so I'm like, oh, no, Moses, you are. You're so awesome. Like, you can do this. You can do it. Just pull yourself together. He's not like your grandma. <laughs> God looks at Moses and says, I will go with you. And friends, that's the beauty of it. That the holy and loving God always sends us out. And because we're exposed by our sin, we will always feel unworthy. You'll think to yourself, how could I ever tell my roommate about God's love for him through Jesus? Or how could I ever talk to my family? Or how could I ever pretend to be a Christian outside the walls of RUF on this campus? People have known what I've done. God, you know who I am. You know what I did last night. And God says that is exactly the point. Of course you aren't up for the job, but I am. Of course you're not good. I am. Of course you screwed up. I haven't. It's not your righteousness. It's mine. You are not adequate. But God says, I am. And you'll know you're in a relationship with God, quite frankly, when you turn into a burning bush yourself. This is what I mean by that. That you're going to start to kind of look weird to people around you. When you've met the one true and living God and you've been brought back to Him through faith in Jesus, people are going to look at you with kind of a strange curiosity. Because on one hand, you're going to be, you're going to be humble. You're going to have this sense of, I'm not as good as I once thought I was. I, I know what good is and it is God. It's not me. And so we have an awareness of our sin and kind of our own impurity. And so that keeps us humble. And yet we move out in this confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence knowing that I know that I'm not good, but I know that God loves someone who's not good. So that makes you strangely confident that you can go before your friends and you can go before other people and you can admit that you're not together and you can admit that you're a failure and you don't always do things right and that you've, you've sinned against them or you've hurt them. That's what allows you to ask forgiveness. 
And so you move out of the world in this strange confidence and humility, and people don't know quite what to do with you, and it makes you like a burning bush. But they'll be drawn to you. Because in you they will see something of the nature of God Himself. I'm going to close with this thought. When I'm out around town um, and people introduce me to others or I introduce people uh, by saying, yeah, I'm Sarah's husband or I'm Nora Klein and Catherine's dad, uh, and then coming in July, we're pregnant, and so we're going to, um, uh, there'll be another baby that we talk about, yeah. <laughs> so it's really exciting. I'm actually not pregnant, just my wife. Um, but that's what you say. And so... Um, you know, there's this amazing pride, and I love it. I love being identified with my wife and my kids. I mean, I love it. I love it. I've lost every girl in the room like, oh, my God. Uh, and maybe some guys, and that's okay. Um, look, what's so beautiful in this passage, and I'm going to try to close this with this thought. Um, what's so beautiful about this passage is that God looks up when he's telling Moses, and he says, look, Tell them that I'm the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but Abraham gave his wife over sexually to the king of Egypt twice so that he could save his own skin. And Jacob himself was a cheat and a liar. And God looks and says, I am not ashamed to be called their God. I am proud to be the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Friends, like a proud daddy, he is not afraid to be called my dad. And he is not afraid to be called your God and your dad either. And you need to know that. You need to know that if you've ever sensed that you're some sort of embarrassment to God, and that you couldn't claim to be a Christian because of what you've done or what you're doing, you need to know that, yes, he is a consuming fire. Friends, he is a loving father who is not afraid to be identified with you. And when you come to know him through faith in his son Jesus, when you enter into that relationship with him, you have to know that this is the I am, that he needed nothing. And that means that he didn't need you. But what it means is that he wanted you. And it means that he loves you. And he is so willing to be called your God. Would you be his child? Let's pray.